Hello, and welcome to Best of Shows, a weekly conversation about the biggest things happening on the small screen and a guide to what shows are and are not worth your time. I'm Kristen Baldwin, TV critic at Entertainment Weekly. I'm joined by my fellow EW critic and TV junkie, Darren Franich. Hi, Darren. Hi, Kristen. How's it going? Oh, pretty good. What's up? Well, let me bring it down a little bit, okay? Uh, It's time for us to talk about what's new. And of course, the biggest new show of the week is the return of HBO's True Detective, the crime anthology series just returned on January 13th on HBO. Uh, Kristen, we all remember the first season of True Detective. Uh, It was 2014. It was a tense thriller about lady antlers and time being a flat circle. We also probably all remember the second season Season of True Detective from 2015, slightly less beloved uh, miniseries about Colin Farrell's mustache and the water stains at Vince Vaughn's ceiling. Kristen, I, I have some good news and some bad news about the new season of True Detective. Good news is it is much more the True Detective that we all remember. This is a time-splitting uh, crime investigation drama. Mahershala Ali plays a detective. We first meet him in 1980 investigating the uh, kidnapping a Apparently, of two children. Uh, We meet uh, Mahershala Ali's character again in 1990, where he's being asked questions about that investigation. Would you believe, Kristen, still one more time zone to wrap your head around? Because we also meet him in 2015, uh, when he is a great-looking older man who is also being asked more questions about all the stuff that happened in 1980 and 1990. Uh, Kristen, the first two hours of True Detective just aired on Sunday. They are the strongest hours uh, of the season, I think. It really does sort of draw you into this Ozark setting. It's very moody. It takes about, you know, 20 minutes for someone to say, oh, maybe we should go to a place that's actually called Devil's Den, which which is which is a real place, but it still sounds like some really, like, over-the-top writing. Um, I, I, I've seen five episodes of the eight-episode season, Kristen. I, I have to say that um, it, it kind of unfortunately feels almost a little too much like the first season. It, it is very much a kind of greatest hits of a lot of the structural ideas of season one. Um, and just past a certain point, it starts to feel very repetitive. Uh, but you've seen some of the new season of, of, of True Detective. Uh, how, uh, how do you kind of feel about the third iteration of the, uh, of the crime anthology? Well, you know, first of all, I am one of the people who stuck through season two all the way to the end, and I definitely agree that it was not good, uh, but it had enough interesting elements, like Vince Vaughn dying of thirst in the desert, to keep me on board. This season, as you said, is definitely a lot stronger, and Mahershala Ali is excellent, and he is believable in all three parentheses, exclamation point, timelines. Um, And yes, it apes season one a lot. Uh, It's, you know, the two detectives, one's a quiet, intense intellectual, and one's a wisecracking macho man. Uh, They're investigating the ritualistic sort of killing and kidnapping of these children in an economically depressed area. I will say I enjoyed Stephen Dorff as well. That was a pleasant surprise. Uh, he plays Roland, the uh, uh, Mahershala's character's uh, partner. But yeah, it does by... What's that episode where the PTSD, Wayne's PTSD from the Vietnam War and uh, his dementia sort of collide in an unfortunate way? And I haven't seen past that episode because I really did need to take a breather. 
uh, after that. Don't you feel, Kristen, it's the kind of super dark and really serious TV show where you just kind of feel like if you tickled anyone on screen, the whole thing would kind of fall apart. Like, it's just it's just very grim. And, you know, even compared to the first season, which was obviously very grim and was about murder and all kinds of awful things, there was just a real energy to it. And, you know, the director, uh, Kerry Fukunaga, brought such a sense of style. And, and there was that kind of swagger of Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. It's kind of missing here. And it is too bad. I mean, you know, again, through the kind of first half of the season that I've seen, um, you kind of mentioned Stephen Dorff is doing a really fun performance as the Woody Harrelson archetype. It, it very much is that, but he's having a lot of fun doing that. Um, uh, Carmen Ajogo, uh, who co-stars as Amelia, a character who is tied in with Mahershala Ali's character in a lot of ways. She's a really great performer. It's a great part. I'm not quite sure the show has a whole big idea what to do with its female characters. Um, you were sort of mentioning uh, a sort of unfortunately awkwardly funny scene from the fourth episode. That scene, that episode also features what I think is the only scene between two female characters so far, and it's just ludicrous. Uh, you know, one of them is sort of saying the, the phrase, quote, I've got the soul of a whore, and it's just like, come on, like, I, I don't think... <laughs> I mean, it is, yeah. This is not a show that's ever handled its female characters well. What's interesting also is that they are acknowledging the fact that since season one of True Detective became such a big thing, it sort of kicked off this true crime wave, including things like Making a Murderer. And there is woven into the True Detective season three storyline, essentially a Making a Murderer type documentary that Wayne Mahershala Ali's character is asked to be part of. And he's being interviewed. And that's one of the timelines. And uh, unfortunately, as you point out in your review, the, the woman doing the interviewing is kind of Oh, she's just kind of a joke. Uh, I mean, I mean, and, and it's even funnier, Kristen, because so you know, again, this character who we meet in 2015, she is kind of this documentarian who is you know working on a serial esque reexamination of this case from many years ago, and because this is you know one of those crime stories where the person who's doing the perpetrating of the crime, you, you don't know who that is. Like it's very much a mystery through the first five episodes. Somehow this documentarian kind of becomes the villain of the season because she's kind of asking these very like penetrating questions. She's doing other things that I don't even want to get into that are kind of ridiculous. And she has this one line where she's talking to Wayne and to his son where she just says kind of off the cuff, I'm interested in the intersectionality of marginalized groups within authoritarian and systemic racist structures. And you just kind of feel a uh, creator, Nick Pizzolatto, doing a big eye roll to millennials in general. And it just... I don't know. That's the stuff that it, it, it feels like score settling is involved somehow. And that's where, for me, compared to, you know, as you mentioned, the huge swath of nonfiction and fictional crime serialized storytelling that's come since the first season. This season, it, it feels a little out of date in a way. It just feels a little like passe compared to some of the really great work that's been done in this genre. I mean, this is a genre, Kristen, that has already kind of created its own brilliant parody in the form uh, of American Vandal. So just yeah, I, I I feel as if this season's maybe arriving a few years too late or just not doing enough that's really different, frankly. 
you know, and it's it's not their fault that they did something groundbreaking and then it spawned, a, you know, a whole new wave of shows that either were trying to uh, ride that wave or just in general, you know, focusing on true crime. But it is, you know, I do... I didn't know how to feel about that producer character because she is essentially like you hate her. And I'm not sure if you hate her because she's just super annoying or because she is truly the villain. Um, and yeah, there, there's a lot going on with the female characters that is just unfortunate in that they're all just unfortunate people. A lot of the men are very unfortunate too, but they get to be unfortunate and heroic. Whereas, uh, the, the women, uh, don't necessarily, I mean, I guess, what would you say is the bottom line for you on this, Darren? I personally believe like I'll stick through it. You know, I, I sat through up uh, season two, I, I will sit through anything, but I think that if anyone's really feeling nostalgic for season one, this will, help that this will, you know, definitely bring back some of those feelings that they had. It just won't, you know, it's a little bit like a, a faded photocopy of season one. I, I think that's a great way of putting it, Kristen. What I've been telling everyone is watch the first two episodes and then stop. Uh, you, you know, there's two, <laughs> two very fine hours. You kind of end there with like, well, that was a weird, very ambiguous ending to something that seems like it should be longer. But I, I, I assume that's fine. So that's what I've been telling most people. But yes, I, I think faded, fo faded photocopy is definitely uh, the right word for it. Kristen, can we shift gears a little bit here and talk about Gillian Anderson? Oh, please. I am always ready to talk about Gillian Anderson. Uh, our next show is a British dramedy that premiered on January 11th on Netflix. And Sex Education tells the story of a likably awkward team named Otis, played by Asa Butterfield, who is adorable. And he's incredibly uncomfortable about his burgeoning hormones, uh, in part because his mother, Jean, played by Gillian Anderson, is a sex therapist who's almost pathologically open about all things sex-related. Um, so through a series of events, Otis ends up starting an underground sex therapy clinic at his school, where he's counsels students on their own sexual hangups using techniques he's learned from his mother. And I love a lot of things about this show, including Gillian Anderson, who's hilarious in it. But what I love the most, I think, is how it blends the sort of traditional sex romp tropes with a very thoughtful and progressive portrayal of teen sexuality. It's actually really, uh, uh, it's created by a woman and it's mostly written and directed by women. And so it's certainly a very, uh, female positive place, uh, you know, in terms of the characters and even Otis is almost like the platonic ideal ideal of how you would want a teenage boy to, to think about sex and interact with, uh, girls his own age. Um, but I'm interested to see what you think, Darren, because I know that, uh, we both were not clear on what this show really was, and I think it both it caught us both a little bit by surprise. So, Kristen, I uh, loved reading your review of Sex Education. It, it kind of confirmed for me that I would probably enjoy this show, mainly because your review featured uh, repetitions of the words Gillian Anderson over and over again. So I, I was watching the first episode and was thinking to myself, this is a very fun 80s period piece. Uh, you know, like we, we, we have a lot of teen sort of throwback nostalgia 
dramedies and comedies. And then, uh, you know, 25 minutes in, all of a sudden someone mentions Pornhub. And I'm just like, wait, whoa, the, the world is breaking. And I, I think, Kristen, m- maybe I was just, you know, I often lose track of what time period I, I'm in in my own life. But, you know, you're sort of drawn in initially to this kind of lovingly crafted, nostalgic looking world. You know, like um, when we meet Asa Butterfield's character, uh, he, he is uh, attempting a form of self-love with a lot of stuff that looks very old fashioned, like magazines and stuff like that. Um, and and the, the look of it just feels very kind of 80s, bright colors. Even the hair initially looked a bit 80s to me. Um, but I, I, I sort of think that is part of what you're talking about in terms of how uh, sex education is very much meant to sort of be set in this world of teen sex romps. Um, you know, everything from Fast Times to American Pie, but also very much, I think, trying to even be a little more sensitive and really just more straightforward about sexuality. Um, my, my sort of like two second d- d- description of it is it's like American Pie if everyone were Natasha Leone or just, you know, if if, if everyone kind of had that kind of knowledge of, you know, sexuality and of how to do this and how to do that. Whereas in American Pie, the joke was sort of that nobody knew anything besides her. Um, and I, I really did uh, get a kick out of it. You've seen um, much more than me. Do you kind of feel like, does it do a good job of balancing the sort of, you know, comedy of the teen sexuality and the comedy and awkwardness of that with the sort of dramatic stuff? At, at least from the first episode, I sort of felt very invested in the characters in a sincere way while also laughing at, I mean, th- there are antics in this show. <laughs> oh, for sure. There is, there are some hardcore antics and you really do need to be prepared. You're going to see a lot of close-ups of uh, genitalia, uh, you're going to see Jillian Anderson's character uh, sort of masturbating an eggplant. Like there's there's a lot that happens and uh, and there are a lot of phalluses. Oh, my God, so many phalluses. But so all of that, though, is presented in this sort of uh, very straightforward way, like you said. But every there's really even though Otis has a big hang up when he deals with his, these other kids, there's no judgment. There's no, you know, shame. He's really sort of like trying to get to the root of, uh, why these kids, uh, are, you know, like there's a girl who, uh, who has an overactive gag reflex. And one of the first things he says to her is why do you feel like you need to give your boyfriend blowjobs? Like what is, that is so incredibly sort of, uh, enlightened, you know, a question for a teenage boy to ask a teenage girl on a show, you know, that is ostensibly a, uh, you know, this, you, when you hear the premise and you hear the title, you think, oh, it's just going to be like the latest, you know, version of Porky's, but it's actually really about like these kids learning to respect each other and themselves. And, I, you know, the the cast is really great. I mean, Jillian Anderson is a supporting role, as she will, you know, tell you. And uh, we interviewed her, and she, you know, really wanted to make it clear, like, this is a show about the kids, even though her character is great and, and appears in every episode. You know, it's about the kids. And uh, Asa Butterfield's amazing. But there's also his friend, Eric, who's played by a newcomer named Suti Gatwa, is amazing. Like, he's so funny and charming. He's his gay best friend who really, like, he's a relentless optimist, even though he's, like, bullied nonstop. And, uh, you know, he he's just really, their friendship is very sweet. Um, so I just love that uh, it's something that, like, 
I I wish that there were a show like this on when I was a teenager, feeling all awkward and ashamed about, you know, hormones and dating and sex, because it really is, uh, it's both funny, but incredibly empathetic. You mentioned something in your review, Kristen, that really cuts to the core of the show for me, that uh, Asa Butterfield, who some people might remember from Ender's Game, and I would just say he's much better here, and this is just better in general than whatever that was, um, but he really is playing two sides of Otis in a way, because he is, you know, this incredibly, wonderfully awkward, you know, nerd who, you know, is not just a virgin, he's, I mean, he's struggling with a lot of things, as a lot of, you know, people his age do, um, but he's very unexperienced in sexuality, and yet he is also this kind of seer, this, you know, wise person for all these, you know, teens around him trying to guide them through their own thing. And I just find that to be really kind of wonderful. I think he does play both of those sides so well. Like, that's, I, I think that's a character we've not really seen before, even though that that just feels very true to life in a lot of ways. Um, and I, I do have to say, I, I love, you know, what you're saying about just wishing there was a show like this around. You know, it, it is both doing this good work for humanity, I would say, of being very straightforward and honest about physical stuff. But it is also really funny and really bright and really poppy. Um, it is set in some miraculous corner of the United Kingdom that seems just wonderful. They actually shot it in Wales. And it's honestly like you watch it and you're just like, I want to go to there because it is just the most quaint, picturesque, beautiful, bucolic setting. Yeah. I mean, you know, everyone's like riding their bike to school and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. the house that uh, Asa Butterfield and Julian Anderson have is, you know, the ultimate sort of view of the river kind of a house. <laughs> yes. um, I didn't know that it was Wales. I'll, we'll have to tell uh, EW's uh, uh, token Welshman, uh, Clark Collis, about that because he'll certainly appreciate uh, seeing his home country on screen. But yeah, this is a very, it, it's, you know, I, I feel like Netflix in general, Kristen, is often very good with, with teen stuff. Um, or, or mm -hmm. certainly that's one of the you know, 150 things that they seem very dedicated to doing. And this, I, I, I rank this kind of very high in their sort of lineage of you know, teen shows, whether it's something like Stranger Things. I, I feel as if this is a show that you'll actually get something out of as a teenager, besides also really laughing at it. And as you mentioned in your review, there is, quote, a remarkable number of phalluses in this show. So many. So many. So, like, you know, you definitely... I was watching this at my desk at work, and yeah, there's some, you know, uh, close-up photos of, you know, ladies' hoo-hahs, and there's some, there's some scrotums in, in close-up. So yeah, you know, just be prepared for that, but know that it's not just, it's not there to shock you. It's just, it's essentially, uh, it's for the humor value while also, you know, driving home the point that uh, Julian Anderson's character, Jean, you know, this is her job. She helps people get get over their their sexual hangups and she's quite good at it so people don't, people don't know this uh, about our jobs Kristen but like when like when when the deuce was on and I was watching screeners for the HBO series set mostly in the 70s porn industry like we're, we're in an open office okay like I mean I there's a lot of scenes where I was just like people I'm sorry this is for work I have to watch this this is not strange please don't report me <laughs> I know you feel like you're like a one-person hostile work environment but you're really just trying to like get your job done. Um, so anyway, yes, yeah, Sex Education is streaming now on Netflix, and I definitely would recommend you check it out. Um, Darren, I think we need to get to the elephant in the room, uh, which is a new show on Fox that essentially is just 
a one-way ticket to crazy town. Yeah, Kristen, uh, I think you misspoke. Uh, we actually have to talk about the sparkly hippo in the room. Uh, we're speaking, of course, about the masked singer, the new reality singing celebrity sensation that airs on Fox on Wednesdays. Uh, Kristen Baldwin of Entertainment Weekly describes it as Donnie Darko plus Pan's Labyrinth times Las Vegas, and there is no better description of it that I have heard yet. Uh, Kristen, this is one of the all-time highest of high-concept reality series. You have a lot of of celebrities, open parentheses, question mark, close parentheses, who are dressed in extremely elaborate costumes. We're talking hippos. We're talking bees. We're talking a pineapple wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Uh, they come on stage. They sing. Some of them sing quite well and appear to be professional singers. Uh, others of them uh, don't seem to be singing really at all. So it creates the weird thing of like, why are we watching a you know sparkly animal lip sync to, uh, to, to, to a song? Wrong. Then we cut to our panel. The panel includes uh, Robin Thicke, Jenny McCarthy, uh, Ken Jeong, and uh, somehow by default, voice of reason, Nicole Scherzinger. Um, they try to guess they try to guess who is behind the mask. They are always wrong, and they always say it is someone who is way too famous to possibly be on the show. Um, although, in fairness, uh, Jane McCarthy did make the correct guess on the recent episode, so who knows? Maybe they are, in fact, the true detectives. Um, Kristen, we've seen two episodes of this so far. This show is a hoot and a holler. Um, I, I, I have like structural issues with it, which is probably the stupidest thing anyone's ever said about The Masked Singer. I feel like you're already giving it too much thought if you're thinking about the structure. I've thought about it a lot, uh, but I have to say, just the sort of like kooky craziness of it has really won me over. Um, you had an incredible write-up of the first episode uh, when it debuted, essentially asking the only question one can ask about this show, which is, what the hell is it? Um, how, how, but, I mean, is it fun to watch? I'm describing all the things that are crazy about it. Do you find that it is actually an entertaining kind of crazy? It is, in that, you know, it's just such a spectacle, and it's so incredibly stupid, but it really does an excellent job of pulling you into the guessing game because that's a big part of it. You know, every time a masked singer is introduced, you know, the hippo, the pineapple, the, the lion, whatever, he or she is given an introductory package where they drop clues about who it could be. And, and it's honestly, you know, it's hard not to start thinking, oh, well, maybe that could be, you know, so-and-so or, oh, well, that person said they were in jail and this rapper was in jail. So maybe it's this rapper. And, you know, and you really do against your better judgment, start getting involved. Um, it's also just kind of fascinating to, uh, I wonder if the judges are actually given the mandate to guess like the absolute you know, most insane choices of people who would never be there. No, Lady Gaga has not shown up on the stage dressed. Yeah, Lady Gaga. Someone guessed that. I was like, Lady Gaga is not, Lady Gaga is about to be an Oscar nominee. She is not doing this show. <laughs> Beyonce's not showing up. It's not Barbara Streisand. Everybody calm down. Like, and really, when you think about it, the reveals so far have been really anticlimactic. You know, the first one, the hippo was a football player named Antonio Brown. And the pineapple uh, was Tommy Chong. Uh, so, you know, great. So, but there are some decent singers in the bunch. So I am still, against my better judgment, curious to find out who some of them are, like the lion, the peacock, even the monster. I'm interested in the monster. 
Oh my God. Well, okay. So let's talk about this because Kristen, the thing that is great about this show, and I'm using great in all caps with with exclamation points at the end, is you'll have these creatures come out and the best people involved in The Masked Singer are the people creating the costumes. Like, like I don't know what skill set we lost with digital effects, but, 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 but whoever was doing that stuff, like they are working on, on The Masked Singer now like they are this is some like Jim Henson meets you know Federico Fellini craziness that is happening on screen here you mentioned the monster who is this sort of very cute adorable grotesque furry cyclops um so he he came out and, and, and like there's just something very endearing looking about this monster, and then he started to to perform uh, "Don't Stop Me Now" by Queen, and it was great. It was a legitimately like great performance. Whoever it is seems to have a like pretty decent voice. And then the, like he was joined on stage by I'm saying he it could be a she for all we know. They were joined on stage by like Cyclops backup dancers. This is this is the kind of like pure Adult Swim weirdness that I really find entertaining. Um, now, now there is the, the problem, Kristen. Then some of the singers are just not good and are obviously not singers. <laughs> so there's definitely there's a lot of fodder. There's in, in or you know sort of a lot of uh, people who are in there just to get voted out. You know, uh, I, I do wonder how this is going to play out because you know the ones who move on are they eventually going to battle it out in, in some kind of battle royale episode where the lion will sing against the peacock who will, who will sing against the monster who will sing against whoever else went through i mean and again like the fact that i even care is just astounding to me so this is definitely the type of show that will uh you know make you dumber for sure but it's also it's pointless to resist i think yeah, it it is evidence, I think, Kristen, you're talking so much about getting involved in the mystery. It does show that, like, having any mystery in anything, certainly nowadays, will make you be like, well, okay, I'll, I'll keep watching this, I guess. Like, I am convinced to find out, you know, I mean, like, I just saw the poodle sing against the bee. Like, now I want to know who the bee is. I guess I'll watch the next few episodes of this. The bee was pretty good. The bee was pretty good. The poodle was not very good. The unicorn is definitely Paris Hilton. Like, I'm calling it right now. It has to be. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, the first episode did pretty well on the ratings. Second episode had a bit of a drop. I suspect we will at least finish off this season. And yeah, I, I, I am invested enough to find out who all these people are. I, I will say, uh, you had sort of warned me about this ahead of time. Uh, Nicole Scherzinger being the sanest and most helpful person on the panel was not something that I was expecting very much. And and by the way, most qualified. Yeah, by far. And she she's also the one who, though it's funny, she'll always be the one who says something like, uh, Monster, I, I don't think you're a professional singer, but you had a really good attitude behind it. Or, you know, you, you had a really good energy behind it. And meanwhile, like Robin Thicke is in the corner carrying himself with all the confidence of, of, of a mediocre white man, just saying like, oh, it's definitely not Boys Two Men. No way, it can't be. I didn't get the vocal tone of Boys Two Men. Like, come on, what do you know about vocal tone? <laughs> yes, please just, you know, you and your auto-tune can just shut up. And stop talking. I just, I can't with him. Um, but again, that is actually part of the fun is sort of hating on the judges uh, in a way that uh, can be quite engaging. 
Absolutely. Uh, so I, I, we'll, we'll be talking about this more over the course of uh, the upcoming episodes of Best of Shows, Kristen. I, I, I have full faith. Uh, but Kristen, uh, we have to talk about a show that's even more confusing now, I think. Now it's time for our TV talk segment in which Darren and I dissect the biggest TV news of the week. If you were one of the 18 million plus people who watched the Golden Globes, I'm guessing that at some point during the night you found yourself thinking, what the hell is the Kaminsky Method? The Netflix comedy created by Chuck Lorre picked up two major awards, including Best Comedy and Best Actor for star Michael Douglas. So what the hell is the Kaminsky Method and do you need to watch it? Those are two very distinct questions, and uh, I will start by saying the comedy stars Michael Douglas as a uh, 70-something well-known acting coach in Hollywood who is sort of forced to face his own mortality and place in the world when his best friend and agent, played by Alan Arkin, loses his wife to cancer. Um, you know, Douglas and Arkin are very likable as grumpy old men. And I certainly found it more entertaining than some of Chuck Lorre's past work, like Two and a Half Men. Um, but it's also real jam-packed with old guy humor that you can kind of predict a mile away. Like, there are so many jokes about Michael Douglas's prostate. <laughs> I just, I mean, a lot, Darren. Uh, and, you know, I, one, of our, one of our colleagues, I think, uh, said... Bill Keith, he said that uh, he didn't want to watch it because he saw his future in, in those <laughs> things, you know, dealing with prostate issues and not being a, able to have a strong stream of urine and things like that. Like, there's a lot of that. A lot. There is at one point Danny DeVito as a urologist with his finger uh, where the sun doesn't shine and poor Michael Douglas. Like, it's a lot. It's a yeah. lot. I, I so I, I have to say, Kristen, uh, I I was sort of uh, told all about the Kaminsky method uh, over the recent Christmas holiday by uh, one of my favorite uncles, my my favorite uncle, if, if he's listening, which he's probably not, because uh, he doesn't, because he does not know what I do. Uh, but he he talked my ear off all about how much he loved the, the Kaminsky method. He specifically brought up the prostate jokes as something that he felt like. How often do you see that on screen? It's one of those things, Kristen, where you know we have we have so much television now and. And so it is kind of like, listen, like every sub, sub, sub slice of the population should have a show for them. But I am also kind of like, you know, OK, I think we've had shows about, you know, dudes born in the 40s before. I mean, I, I think that's most of what television was at one point. I mean, it just it just seems like, I, I, you know, it, I, I, I find I found watching what little of Kaminsky Beth that I could get through. Like, I would have almost preferred just like, you know. A, a filmed conversation between Michael Douglas and Alan Arkin as a weekly thing of just th those two guys kind of like chatting. I because I, I, I found I don't know there's a little bit of you know entourage for senior citizens vibe that I got from Kaminsky Method that I didn't totally um, groove onto. But clearly the Hollywood Foreign Press Association disagrees with me. <laughs> um, yeah, the HFPA like clearly loves this show, you know, and you know it 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 is rife with uh, you know some old Hollywood glamour. I I mean, like Anne Margaret is in uh, the first episode, I believe. And yes, my in-laws over the holiday break were telling us how much they loved it. So I do think that this is a very specific show for a very specific demographic and anybody else who likes prostate humor. Um, so I, the only other thing I would like to point out, though, is that Nancy Travis plays Michael Douglas's love interest. And she, you know, he's apparently somebody who's slept around a lot. He coached a lot of uh, famous actresses in his day and slept with all of them. And uh, she is described as an age-appropriate 
love interest for him. And just FYI, Michael Douglas is 74 and Nancy Travis is 58. So age appropriate, um, I guess. But you're, you're, you're not telling me they couldn't find a, an actress in, their, in her 60s or early 70s who might have been able to do this. Anyway, she's very funny in it. You know, bless her heart. Uh, I guess it's better than them, you know, hooking him up with a 40-something. But it's, it is, in a word, Hollywood. And again, this is where I'm just kind of like, wasn't there a whole stretch of the 90s where every movie was Michael Douglas being married to a much younger woman? Like, oh, come on. Like, I, you know, this is this is this is a genre that we have seen before, even if it's not necessarily been about, you know, people of this age. So, yeah, I'm, you know, uh, again, we were talking about this before the Globes, Kristen. The Globes are going to be the Globes. Uh, I, I am very happy that there's an awards show that so often calls out these TV series people haven't always heard of. Uh, cough, Mozart of the Jungle, Cough. Um so it's been it's been a fun week or so getting to chat about the the, the Kaminsky method. Uh, and listen, if there's fans out there, let us know about it. We want to hear your favorite prostate joke from this season of the Kaminsky method. And did you enjoy <laughs> watching Danny DeVito put his finger inside Michael Douglas? Let us know. <laughs> finally, finally, all of television has been the whole history of TV has been a has been merely prelude to that moment. Kristen, let's uh, segue into our final segment, What We're Rewatching. This is where you and I talk all about shows that we're revisiting, or perhaps sometimes older series that uh, you or I never got around to for whatever reason. This week, Kristen, we're talking about the show that everybody is remembering because a huge anniversary has just arrived. Uh, last Thursday was the 20th anniversary of the series premiere of HBO's The Sopranos, a completely medium redefining sensation in its initial run that people are still talking about all these years later. The Sopranos, of course, starred uh, the late, great James Gandolfini and Edie Falco as Tony Soprano and Carmela Soprano, seemingly uh, regular couple of suburban New Jersey people who just so happened to be tied in with the mob, where Tony was a uh, initially a boss, and then he kind of kept on rising the ranks over the course of the show. Um, created by David Chase, The Sopranos has been been uh, praised to high heaven basically since it first debuted. Uh, it was really fun last week, Kristen, kind of going back and seeing some of the things that EW was writing about the show when it first debuted, because uh, at the time, I was an EW reader, and even though we didn't have HBO, I basically knew everything about the first five seasons of The Sopranos, because EW would just write about it all the time. So I could kind of pretend that I knew what, it, what, 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 that I knew, uh, what it was about, and then ultimately I didn't really uh, f watch the show until it hit DVD. Um, but Kristen, uh, during the 20th anniversary week, HBO was kind of uh, doing great marathons of every season of the show, all six and a half seasons or seven seasons, depending on how you kind of count the final 20 or so episodes. Uh, I have to say, Kristen, it was incredible to dig back into the show. Um, I was very much doing the channel surfing thing of just kind of like whenever I was at home and the marathon was on, I I'd kind of tune in for a while. Um, it just it really is a show that with the passage of time I think has only gotten better. I think part of that is because there is just the incredible added resonance and drama attached to seeing James Gandolfini again on screen, um, especially in the later years of the show. There are a lot of scenes that are kind of just close-ups on Tony and the sound of him breathing is like the soundtrack and it just, you know, it really does in the great way that, you know, acting and television and, and motion pictures do. It, it brings him back to life 
life in a way that is, you know, you know such an additional uh, tangible energy versus when it was first on. Um, but Kristen, you went back and rewatched the pilot of the show, uh, which is, you know, 20 years old now. Uh, what was it like to revisit that after all these years? Well, you know, it's I forgot again how amazing it was. And now I think I am going to have to go back and watch everything. But what really stood out for me is how well, you know, pilots of anything are, you know, just really hard to do because you have to introduce all these characters, you have to introduce the premise, you have to, you know, either make people laugh or get them engaged if it's a drama. uh, And you have to do that all while telling an interesting story. And so many threads that run throughout the whole series were set up so clearly here, you know, Tony's feelings of inadequacy and uh, Christopher having dreams of being in Hollywood and his drug issues, Carmela's almost like sexual devotion to the church, uh, Junior and Livia, you know, conspiring against Tony, like everything that you see in the pilot really does. And of course, Tony beginning his therapy with Dr. Melfi, everything really does uh, pay off many ways over the years. And it's something where you clearly, you know, you can often watch a show and you think, well, that's really good, but do they know where they're going? This is a show where, you know, obviously David Chase knew where he was going from the beginning. Um, And I just loved also the juxtaposition of the sort of mind numbing bureaucracy with the mafia, you know, like it, it really, uh, you know, since then, I think there have been a lot of shows where, where they kind of, imagine what would it be like if this, you know, formerly glamorized industry was really just, you know, like working at an office. This is something where really took that idea uh, and ran with it. You know, everything is a bureaucracy, even the mafia. You know, Junior says something like, oh, we used to be recession proof, no more. You know, like they're all feeling the pinch. And so I think that was, you know, a lot that went a long way in making Tony Uh, somebody who was relatable, even though he was, uh, you know, a killer. Um, And, you know, obviously, so much has been said, primarily by uh, writer Alan Sepinwall about, you know, the the emergence of the antihero, and how that changed TV. Uh, But you really do. uh, This was something that, as you said, revolutionized how uh, shows treated their their characters in a way and allowed their characters to behave. Yeah, I, I loved, you know, Kristen, you kind of calling out the bureaucracy. There was such a t- completely concrete influence of this show on kind of, on, on, on almost everything that came out, certainly through the 2000s, um, in terms of the license for what your main characters could get away with, could they could now kill people. I mean, you know, you, you don't get to like The Walking Dead where every hero on screen is a mass murderer without, without you know, the Sopranos. Um, but I, I love, this is one thing that really stuck out to me as well, is that, you know, you have all these shows that tried to be, for lack of a better word, as cool as The Sopranos. And, you know, let's do like, you know, the stylish crime and murder and violence and, you know, all, all this kind of very fun, entertaining stuff. But this was also a show where like, I mean, Tony had like money issues and everyone had like money issues and they were all kind of through this filter of crime. But I remember like, you know, there was always all the talk about like no show jobs and all the sort of like, 
you know, grinding work of how you actually do organized crime, which was just so fabulous and really did give it that added texture that I think a lot of shows didn't have. Um, I'd be interested to know, Kristen, just because I, in kind of digging back in, um, one thing that really just stuck out to me was how many characters right in that first episode um, really are there the whole time. I mean, like beyond just the family, you have this incredible community all around them. Do you have like a favorite sort of like tertiary or supporting Sopranos character who, you know, was there kind of through most of the run or who kind of, you know, along the margins besides, you know, Tony and Carmela and their kids and Christopher, who was sort of just this this like familiar face through uh, all, all, all episodes of the show? She barely has any lines in the pilot, but Adriana yeah. is there. And she, you don't even know her relationship uh, to Christopher at the time because she's she's a hostess at a wait at a restaurant where Tony and Carmela go and uh you know I when I saw her I was like oh there's Adriana because you know obviously uh like spoiler alert 10 20 years later uh she does not meet a great fate um but she uh I loved her character so much. Christopher. Christopher. <laughs> Christopher. She was a whore. You know, so Adriana is always, you know, going to be one of my favorites. I probably will have to now do a full rewatch, which, you know, I have plenty of time for because it's not like there's lots of new TV that we need to watch uh, for our jobs. Yeah. And yeah, it's something that uh, because so uh, my, my wife has seen like parts of The Sopranos, hasn't seen all of it. Like we were talking about like, are we going to do the rewatch? And I really want to. But it is one of those things of like... Like there are 86 episodes of this show and there are 86 new shows that just debuted while we were having this conversation. So yeah, finding the time is definitely kind of tricky, but it was great to kind of have this moment to kind of go back and dig into and kind of celebrate the show. There's such a, a warmth to the series, which I think does come from the fact that David Chase was kind of lending this autobiographical side to it. You really feel like you get to know and love their corner of Jersey and it feels so rich and alive in a way that that, you know, some more spectacular settings kind of don't uh, on screen. Um, so, yeah, it, you know, great to kind of get to go back and dig into that again and uh, enjoy it. And uh, uh, I, I still miss James Gandolfini every day. Just again, some of those close ups on him just bring such a tear to my eye now. I, I mean, we were talking about this uh, while I was watching the pilot again, just at the end when he's talking about the ducks and realizing why he was so sad that the ducks left his pool. I mean... There's so much happening in that in that scene just with him and uh, Lorraine Bracco. It's really uh, it's it does so much to uh, humanize him. But you also know through the course of the episode, he's like run a man over. He's broken a man's leg. He's you know, he's pounded the crap out of somebody. So but he still gets sad that the ducks and their babies left the pool. So that is uh, that was unique and uh, something new and groundbreaking at the time and it deserves to be celebrated this many years later. Yeah, it, it still feels remarkable. I mean, in, in, in watching the sort of later parts of the show when Tony just gets really terrible and does really awful things and you're very aware of that. He's not even an anti-hero anymore. He's kind of just a villain, really, by then. But you are just still so invested in him and I think that's a pretty remarkable part of the show. Kristen, that wraps it up for the debut episode of Best of Shows. Uh, everyone who's listening to this 
this if you found us on EW's Game of Thrones weekly feed. Uh, the Game of Thrones podcast will be back just as soon as the new season of Game of Thrones is back. You can uh, listen to me and James Hibbard talk all about Westeros there. If you liked what you he- what you heard here, and I hope you did, you can subscribe to Best of Shows. Search us uh, for EW Best of Shows wherever you find podcasts. Uh, while you're at it, give us a rating, give us a review. We want to hear from you. We want to know what you're liking or disliking in television. If you disagree with us, uh, then uh, you're wrong. Just kidding, just kidding. Only if you disagree with me. Uh, let us know what you think uh, on Twitter. I'm at Darren Franich. Kristen, of course, is at Kristen G. Baldwin. Uh, until next time, I should have a catchphrase, but I don't, so goodbye. <laughs>